hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator. All right, welcome back to the next episode of the Just Law Podcast. I'm Tom Blakely. I'm here with Joanna Plazier and uh, Professor Lyons. Uh, professor Lyons is the Associate Dean of Academic Affairs and a Professor of Law at Boston College Law School. Uh, he specializes in the area of property, telecommunications, and administrative law. Joining the faculty, uh, Professor Lyons practices energy, telecom, and administrative law at the firm of Munger, Tolls, and Olson in Los Angeles. He also clerked for Judge Cynthia Holcomb Hall of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Professor Lyons has testified before Congress and state legislatures and has participated in numerous proceedings at the Federal Communications Commission. His work has appeared in legal journals such as Emory Law Review and in the popular press, including Forbes Magazine, U.S. News and World Report, and the Wall Street Journal. He's also a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he's written over 100 blog posts on tech policy issues. Uh, I couldn't think of anybody better to, to come on and discuss today's topic, which is what's been going on with Facebook. So if you've been following the news, uh, obviously over the last couple of months here, uh, there's, there's been a whistleblower that you know came out, came forward with the Wall Street Journal, and a lot of information has come out that has uh, created scrutiny in, in, in Congress and testimony and all sorts of uh, conversations about what to do about Facebook or now Meta or, you know, well, whatever it is they're calling themselves things. these days. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there's, there's some pretty scary things going on there with Facebook and there's questions about what to do about that. And so that's why we want to have a conversation uh, with Professor Lyon. So jo- Joanna, Professor, how are we doing today? Doing great. Thank you. How are you, Professor? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me. All right. I'd love to, before we get into the nitty gritty of the things, Professor Lyons, I'd love like a, a thousand bird's eye view, a thousand foot bird's eye view of what's going on with Facebook slash meta, um, the situation. Sure. Uh, Facebook, meta, Twitter, like the, the, the bigger issues of like the current war against big tech, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the easiest way is to, to set the stage, but to set the stage, I have to take you back to 1996. Mm. So 1996 was um, the dawn of the internet age, right? Only about half of us had internet access. Most who did uh, access the internet through that dial-up, which made that weird like donkey static noise, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, one of the issues in the uh, mid-90s as uh, internet providers were just beginning to roll out was what do we do with user content online? So uh, Prodigy, which was a proto-internet service provider, had this thing called a bulletin board. And on the bulletin board, um, users could post uh, information, and Prodigy had um, uh, moderators that would review the postings from time to time. Uh, One of the difficulties Prodigy ran into is somebody posted um, allegedly defamatory information about a company called Stratton Oakmont. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wolf saying, of Wall Street. Yep, at uh. Jordan Belfort's company, right? Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> um, so uh, the the allegation on the post was that uh, Stratton Oakmont had uh, defrauded the SEC in, in connection with its IPO. Mm-hmm. So Stratton Oakmont did the all American thing, right? Filed a lawsuit against Prodigy and ended up winning, not only um, suing the user who posted the information, but also Prodigy for having carried it. Um, uh, despite the fact that it wasn't Prodigy itself that made the allegedly defamatory statement. Now, that's not a surprise as a way of offline law work, working, right? Um, if I print, a le- if I write a letter to the editor and it defames you and it gets printed in the New York Times, you can sue both me for defaming you and the New York Times for publishing it, right? It's publisher liability. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Prodigy and other internet companies made the uh, argument to Congress that if we are going to be held liable for our user content, right, uh, online, then one of three things are going to happen. Either we're never going to host user content, right? All you're going to get is what we want to put out. Or uh, we're going to need to get an army of moderators uh, where we're reading everything everybody wants to post before it ever goes up, right, which quickly becomes economically infeasible. Hmm. 
or we're never going to moderate anything at all. And that way we can avoid being called publishers who have uh, the ability to edit. And, and then uh, what happens is the entire uh, site becomes like, you know, 8chan or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Completely unmoderated cesspool. Mm. And this was a time when Congress was really concerned about creating disincentives to moderation. And the real concern was that the internet was, uh, pornography was going to happen on the internet, right? Mm. It was going to be there and kids are smarter than the adults and they would figure out how to get to pornography. Mm. So they, uh, Congress, uh, once they heard there are disincentives for us to moderate online, they took action. And the action was a, a law called uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, yep. uh, which has uh, one uh, law professor has called it the 26 words that uh, created, the, that internet. created the internet. Yep, that's exactly right. So Section 230 has two parts. It basically says that um, a platform, a social media company or any other internet-based company is not to be treated as the speaker or publisher of uh, user content, right? Content provided by the users. It also says that the um, internet-based company will not be liable for making decisions in good faith to take down content that they think is objectionable. Right, so these two pieces are literally the thing that gives us the internet today, not just like Facebook and, and Twitter, but also um, uh, eBay, right? Uh, Yelp, which is hosting uh, mm -hmm. uh, user reviews, um, the Amazon marketplace, like anything where the company is hosting user content is protected by Section 230. So for folks that don't understand, basically we're talking about like the idea of a platform so that a, a tech company can have a site where there's user-generated content and, and there's an audience and you know when there's massive amounts of content going back and forth, like on Facebook, for instance, or, or, or elsewhere, it basically, you know, facilitates that because without Section 230 and with all of that liability, you might, you know, like you said, an, an army of moderators, that might not be feasible. Mm. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, for a long time, we had sort of a bipartisan consensus that Section 230 was a good thing. It was creating different rules for online companies and offline companies, right? Mm -hmm. And so the, the offline newspaper guys were really complaining. Like, if we accidentally print somebody's defamatory statement, we get sued and, you know, Facebook's off the hook. What's up with that? Mm -hmm. But um, the, the consensus up until about 2016, 2017 was that this is uh, absolutely integral for the Internet to grow and emer um, develop and innovate in the way that it has. Mm -hmm. Uh, the difficulty since then has been now that these uh, the Internet is sort of out of its infancy, right? It has now grown into a bigger and bigger part of our lives. Folks have begun to rethink whether it makes sense for this level of immunity to continue to be given to companies like Facebook. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's right now a growing bipartisan movement to amend Section 230, mm. but to amend it in different ways, depending on whether you're on the right or on the left. The folks on the left are critiquing companies like Facebook for not taking down enough content, right? Mm -hmm. Their view is we've given immunity to these companies for what they post online, and therefore there's no incentive for them to take down things like white supremacy material or uh, violent content misinformation, or misinformation mm -hmm. right? anti-vax stuff, things like that. The critique on the right is exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. They're critiquing Facebook for taking down too much content, and in particular, the idea that um, they're the owners and moderators of Facebook are largely left of center. And so when they're making decisions about what go up and uh, what to leave up and what to take down, they're disproportionately deprioritizing conservative viewpoints. Mm -hmm. I have not seen any evidence that this is happening on a systemic basis. And if you go to Facebook, you'll see like the, the top 10 things that are shared each week, right? Um, many of them are going to be like Daily Wire, Ben Shapiro, that kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, that having been said, there's certainly a perception uh, driven by former President Trump 
that uh, Silicon Valley is set against conservatives. And it is interesting that both President Biden and former President Trump, you know, for very different reasons, both expressed an idea that 230 needs to, which it's, it's a weird way to agree. I mean, I guess they're not really agreeing about much, but, uh, you know, it seems like both sides of the aisle have different problems, but problems no less with 230. Yeah, and that's what's, what's interesting about the conversation, right? You've yeah. got, uh, in a sense... Uh, far leftists and and uh, alt rightists almost mm-hmm. right coming together to say section two they needs to change. But mm-hmm. if you ask them how, mm-hmm. they move in completely different directions. So I'm not 100 percent sure we're ever going to get a bipartisan consensus on uh, the fix. Mm-hmm. But there certainly is a bipartisan consensus that the current law is broken. What would Professor, I'd like to ask. Sorry about that, Tom. Um, it seems that there's a bit of a conflict of interest with social media platforms in limiting these types of content because while they are most of the time, um, like harmful at the same time, those salacious, that kind of salacious content gets a lot of like traffic up into the sites. Do you, how do you think Facebook or a social media platform like that will balance? So this becomes the, this becomes the big issue with the, the, uh, whistleblower, the Facebook whistleblower, right? Mm. The, um, uh, much of the conversation has turned on, even though we're not a section 230 means that, um, Social media platforms don't have to moderate. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, they do moderate, right? Mm-hmm. So if, I, I, if you are a Facebook user, you may have noticed, or maybe you didn't. Uh, Facebook is actually relatively free of uh, really objectionable content. There's no violent imagery. There's not, you know, uh, rampant pornography on the on the platform. Mm-hmm. That's not because Facebook's three billion users are all like paragons of virtue, right? <laughs> it's because Facebook has decided making the platform family friendly, for lack of a better phrase, right, is what's going to increase its marketability. It's going to separate it from uh, Twitter, which is a little bit edgier. Marketability to to users or to advertisers? Uh, To both, right? Because what Facebook wants to do is increase the number of people and more importantly, increase the amount of time those people spend on the site, Mm -hmm. because that makes the company more valuable to the advertising uh, that they ultimately end up selling. Now, to your earlier point, you talked about, uh, you know, there's obviously folks on the right who feel that, you know, they're, they're sort of disproportionately targeting, uh, you know, more conservative viewpoints. And there were, and I believe her name is Frances Haugen, I don't know exactly how to pronounce her name, but uh, released all these documents, the Wall Street Journal internal, you know, messaging. And, you know, there were some, uh, you know, points in particular that she, you know, released where you saw these internal communications of, you know, Facebook employees, uh, you know, expressing in large part, you know, some animus towards, uh, you know, so some conservative news outlets sort of saying, you know, why are we, uh, you know, allowing folks with these viewpoints to, to you know, use our service to, to you know, sort of disseminate, um, you know, where they're coming from. And then on the other hand, there is this, you know, sort of concern about, you know, what is okay, what's misinformation, what's news. There's, there's a lot of, you know, uh, questions that are out there. And it seems like Facebook, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, sort of just wants to, you know, walk a fine line of where, you know, okay, we, you know, we have, folks who are coming here for very different things, but the idea of, you know, watch time views, the business models. Real- oh, did this just shut off? No, we're good. It just we're good. That. Okay. That's yeah. good. Sometimes I do that. So that's, that's <laughs> good. Um, but it, it does seem like just the, the business model overall is we're going to try to show you things that you want to see. That's going to keep you coming back to the app. That's going to, you know, keep your eyeballs here longer. It's going to attract more eyeballs to the screen and ultimately, um, you know, to advertisements. But it seems like, you know, politics or not, there's problems with that business model because as we saw, uh, you know, you know, whether it's, it's toxic for teen girls or it's, uh, you know, encouraging, you know, unhealthy, uh, you know, body images or extreme political opinions. It seems that the, the, the algorithms itself, this idea that we're going to try to figure out what you like and keep serving it to you, no matter what it is you're here for, doesn't seem to be healthy, but 
you know, does 230, does it just take away any liability? Is there liability for, for some of those effects or like, where do you draw the line with some of these harmful effects? Uh, and for a long time, uh, we didn't worry at all about, or I shouldn't say we didn't worry at all. Um, the effect of uh, broadcast television was largely to, to cater to the middle. It was all like Gilligan's Island. You know, Leave it to uh, Beaver. Yeah, yeah, Dick Van Dyke, like very milquetoast stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, because you, when you only had three channels, right, ABC, NBC, CBS, right, each one of those companies wanted to maximize the number of people tuning in. Mm-hmm. And so you offer stuff that's relatively unobjectionable. It's not super exciting, but uh, it's going to draw large numbers of people. It wasn't until cable comes along and gives you like 156 choices, right, that uh, pr- uh, people who are creating programs started getting more edgy mm-hmm. because they, they thought, well, the masses are going to go to broadcast, but I can create like the Sci-Fi Channel or HBO or Cinematic. Have a niche audience. Right. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. can, you can develop a niche by appealing to extremes. Mm-hmm. Not, not everybody's going to go to those sites yeah. or those channels, right, but um, you could d- make a niche profitable. Okay. So um, when you look at social media as broadcast 2.0, right, you would think uh, Facebook, Twitter are going to be the broadcasters of that media. Right? They're, mm. they're going to produce the social media equivalent of that, like, kind of boring but unobjectionable content because mm-hmm. they're interested in largest numbers. But what we've learned, and I don't know if this is uh, a change in, you know, what's happening in the 70s versus now mm. or a change in um, humans doing programming versus algorithmic programming for content. But one of the things that comes out of the whistleblowers uh, documents is that it's the extreme stuff that drives the traffic. In other words, the further you are on the right or the left, the more you're going to be generating shares and clicks. Mm-hmm. And that creates a problem for a model, for a self-moderating model, because the assumption, one of the assumptions going into Section 230 is that um, you're going to try to, if you want to be big, you're going to moderate in a way that makes the the content uh, relatively mild, not you're going to moderate in a way that makes it more extreme than, mm-hmm. than society as, as a whole. Definitely. Some of the, uh, you know, what came out from this whistleblower was, you know, documents that showed that internally at Facebook, th- there is an understanding of just how much havoc, you know, the, these algorithms in this business model is wreaking on society. You know, you've seen Facebook accused of, uh, y- you know, maybe not in, in involvement, but sort of in, enabling genocides in part of the world, all sorts of, you know, hate and, and just this, you know, functionality of having algorithms that can figure out, you know, how people tick and showing them very, um, you know, precise things. Not only, you know, we sort of talked about the politics and how it pushes people to the extremes um, in that way. But at the same time, you know, from what you read about this, in order for them to tamp down on some of that, it's going to cost money because ultimately, you know, if, if you dial back some of those algorithms and you're showing things to people that might be uh, maybe appeal to less prurient interests or maybe you're not as politically charged and maybe you don't have the same, um, you know, addictive quality, you know, you're, you're going to lose some views there. So it seems like, you know, profits and, you know, doing what, uh, you know, people might find responsible or, you know, goals that are at odds with each other. So if you're, if you're Facebook and you're facing some of these determinations and you're tuning your algorithms, like what do you think goes on in, inside the room when they're trying to make these decisions about how these things should work? I mean, yeah, so on the one hand, right, if you go to at the 10,000-foot level, like what mm-hmm. is it that the, the document dump from the whistleblower is, is revealing, right? It's revealing something that isn't really surprising. Right. Corporations are acting in ways that maximize shareholder value. That's actually mm-hmm. what they're legally required to do, right? So um, it's not a surprise on one level to hear, yes, if we uh, eliminate this extreme content, we may end up with fewer uh, users and less face time. 
and therefore might reduce our advertising profit. So let's not do that, right? That's a trade-off that rationally makes sense for the corporation because the private incentives and the public incentives are not aligned. Um, and I should caveat by saying uh, Facebook has not yet fully responded to the um, uh, the documents that have been released, except to say a lot of these were taken out of context and they're incomplete. So mm-hmm. um, this is very much a story still in progress. Okay. Um, it's also worth noting that it's not like Facebook doesn't moderate, right? There, there is a, uh, both a, uh, mechanical algorithm that's built in to try to flag potentially bad content before it, it gets posted. And there's also an army of third world, um, uh, workers that contractors, pay, right. Mm-hmm. To spend, you know, eight, 10, 12 hours a day, like looking at things that the algorithm has flagged and be like, okay, mm. that's bad. That's good. That's bad. That's good. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that um, I suspect will come out is um, how that model is helpful for some things and not for others, right? So if you are, um, say, a, a Filipino contractor who's lo- just looking at images, it's easy to figure out sort of what, what is pornography and what's not. Mm-hmm. Right? Very different, I think, to pick up on, for example, what is alt-right content versus normal conservative dialogue, right? Because that involves a certain cultural familiarity. It's yeah. a tough call for an algorithm. Right. Well, yeah. for an algorithm or for a person. Um, someone, yeah. Yeah. somebody who's, who's not uh, immersed in the culture. Yeah. Right? So I think Facebook, is one of the things that we're seeing is there's a cultural limit to the current business model, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're reducing labor costs by... Um, outsourcing by outsourcing your moderation but you can't uh, the the moderator then becomes not as useful of a tool it's a a more of a blunt instrument not a way to fine-tune the conversation Mm -hmm. the way that our uh, society I think is increasingly hoping that Facebook will. Professor I foresee that either way that 230 swings there's bound to be some first amendment issues is that something you foresee Either way, how do you yeah. think Facebook will c- contend with that? Yeah, so I, I, again, how do we um, level set the First Amendment debate, right? So right. oftentimes uh, people say, flip things like, you know, I have a, a right to free speech and therefore I have a right to say whatever I want online. President Trump was almost kind of saying, mm. right? like, when Twitter shut me down, it violated my free speech. Mm. So I think it's important at the outset to say, like, the First Amendment says that Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech, right? Mm. It doesn't bind private entities the same way. So when um, uh, that's why, for example, if a student stands up in my class and starts talking my class or my office hours or my front yard, I can say go away. Mm-hmm. And it's not a violation of that student's free speech rights. Mm-hmm. Um, Facebook is the same way. Right? When Facebook uh, takes down a user post, mm-hmm. it may be a violation of the contract, depending on what the terms of service are. Mm-hmm. If you go to the terms of service, you'll find that actually Facebook has an enormous amount of discretion mm-hmm. about whether to take your stuff down. Uh, but it's not a violation of your First Amendment rights. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another layer on that, which is that Facebook itself has First Amendment rights. Mm. So um, the, specifically the right of editorial control. This comes from a case called uh, Miami Herald versus Tornillo, mm-hmm. where uh, Florida had passed a law saying if a newspaper criticizes the candidate, the candidate has a right of reply, right? Mm-hmm. A, a right to equal time and space in the newspaper to refute what the, uh, the, the to refute the paper's criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Tornillo, who was a uh, maybe corrupt union representative mm-hmm. who was running for some position, took a bunch of heat from the Herald, demanded his right of reply, and the Herald said, no, that violates our First Amendment rights. Mm-hmm. And the court agreed. The court said to the extent that um, we're forcing the, the Herald to say something he doesn't want to say uh, on its platform, that violates their right of editorial control, which mm-hmm. is protected by the First Amendment. 
So in a sense, right, President Trump had it exactly backwards. Mm-hmm. The First Amendment doesn't protect Trump from Twitter. It protects Twitter from Trump or rather Twitter from the president. Uh, so what that means in practice is um, at some point, the, the effort to force for, for government to tell Facebook what it can and can't have on its site mm-hmm. will run up against Facebook's own First Amendment right of gotcha. editorial control. Now, um, if I, the fact that I have a right to say what I want doesn't mean I have a right to be free of consequences. Mm-hmm. Right? I can make a defamatory statement, but I could be sued for it. Mm-hmm. So that, and that's where the rubber hits the road in the 230 debate, right? So gotcha. um, prior restraint kind of uh, makes it hard for the government to say, Facebook, don't print that. Mm-hmm. But repealing Section 230 might make Facebook liable for what it chooses to print, mm-hmm. uh, user content that it chooses to, to publish. Uh, and that could lead to incent- softer incentives to moderate. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, so a few years ago, obviously, Mark Zuckerberg came to testify before Congress, and it you know, did seem like, you know, at least from a layman's perspective, that you know, some of the people asking him questions didn't have perhaps the most thorough understanding of how Facebook works or really understand exactly how to pin this guy down. He was a little bit, uh, you know, um, illusory about some of his answers, and it just didn't seem to be particularly fruitful. And a few years later, we had this whistleblower come forward with, a whole lot to say um, that didn't exactly paint Facebook in, in the greatest light. And there's been all sorts of, you know, bluster and bravado and talking points coming out of Washington. How serious are lawmakers now at actually doing something about this? Or is it how much is lip service and how much of it is, you know, sort of actionable legislation? So a couple of points I want to pull out there. I think that there are a couple of good things. You're right that the folks in Congress who are leading these um, uh, congressional investigations uh, did a very good job of showing how little they know how things work, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm reminded in particular of the the exchange last month where a member of Congress was demanding, will you right now commit to ending Finsta, right? <laughs> As if that's some product that Instagram had rolled out and not just like slang. In fact, I thought like when Facebook was going to rename the company, right, it would have been a total gangster move to just say our new company's name is Finsta. Finsta. That'd be great. <laughs> uh, but no, they didn't have the, the kind of courage to do that. Uh, that having been said, um, I think ultimately... Uh, there's a lot of heat and light about this topic in Washington. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not as convinced that once you get beyond the beltway, it's resonating as well with um, users. So if you look at Google Trends, right, so it's the, the trend of what people are talking about uh, over a period of time. Um, there are three big Facebook events that happened over the last couple of months, right? Yeah. Um, the renaming, we're going in, in, in reverse chronological order, the renaming to Meta, mm-hmm. the whistleblower allegations, and the one-day outage. By far, the outage was the thing that people were talking about <laughs> most, right? Um, Affected Instagram, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, yeah, it was the, the entire company. Like, like WhatsApp and a few other oh, properties. Man. Yeah. So w- what that tells me is that um, for most people in the United States, right, what they're really interested in is having a product that works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so um, they're, they're not as turned off to what's going on on the these particular platforms as Washington seems to think they are. In other words, I think the average American doesn't see this as a big as big a problem as uh, our our uh, government regulators do. Now, part of what we pay our regulators to do is solve the problem so we the people don't have to think about it, right? right. Mm-hmm. But I think there is a bit of a disconnect and it's not a surprise um, that uh, the the talk within the beltway is not necessarily matching what's going on in the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. But that can't be um, an abnormal event, though, I'd imagine. Like, for example, I would say with um, the name of the act is slipping my mind, but it was the act that made you sign a uh, whenever you're registering for an account on a social media website, you have to be at least 13 years old. Yep. Right. Um, I'd imagine that. Is that COPA? 
cop, cop, yeah, that's, that's what that's it right. is. Uh. Um, so I'd imagine that that wasn't like from the company side, that's not too great for them because they're losing out on like, I know, obviously there are some people or kids that make accounts, whatever, uh, despite all that. But still, um, either way, like I think Americans did have an interest, but not to the extent that mm -hmm. we're facing here. So I'm asking this because um, I think part of the documents included a study that Facebook conducted internally concerning um, females' body image and their Instagram's effect on that. So the question I'm asking here is, um, what do you think, well, first of all, do you think that research study indicates that this is of concern to Facebook, even though I'm not sure this was addressed yet with Congress? Um, and if you believe that, I'm sorry, the second question slipped me. So the first one. <laughs> I was <laughs> looking around with the first one, right? So, yeah. Um, so it's not that uh, Facebook and other social media companies are prohibited from catering to minors under 13. It's just that the regulatory requirements to do so are much more onerous. Gotcha. So um, collecting uh, companies can collect information about users over 13 unless those users opt out, right? So mm -hmm. the default is they can collect unless you say no. Mm. For minors, the law flips the other direction. So if you have a user under 13, you cannot collect uh, privacy information about them unless you get affirmative consent. Mm. And so what that requires is not just like uh, making sure that that the parent or whoever guardian uh, is opting in, mm. but you have to track those records. You have to make sure that in the event somebody challenges you, you can produce the, the um, evidence that there was some consent. And it's just a hassle. Mm. Um, and there's a potential huge legal liability. So companies choose not to take on that regulatory burden. Mm. One of the things that the whistleblower showed was that um, Facebook was trying to figure out, can we devise a form of Instagram? Um, I think it was Instagram. Yeah. That would uh, cater to minors and still abide by these opt-in requirements. Can we do that? They're kind of thinking about it. Mm. Um, not a surprise that they want to do so. Facebook has a huge image problem among uh, uh, younger users, right? Mm. That uh, it, it's for old people. Mm. Instagram is starting to move in that direction. Mm. And so they recognize, even though they're the kings of the world now, this uh, environment is highly uh, innovative. Mm. And you know, go ask the guys who uh, paid $500 million for MySpace, right? <laughs> Only to find out it was worthless five years later. That right. this space moves quickly. If you're not adapting, you're falling behind. Mm -hmm. So um, can we find ways to, you might think it's like the tobacco model, get them hooked early and then they stay with the platform. But I would say it's much less um, uh, nefarious than that. Yeah. It's just a matter of trying to figure out how we survive uh, from now into the next generation. One takeaway from the uh, whistleblower documents is not only this is happening, but now that it's been revealed, Facebook has decided at least for now to put a pause on that. Mm. Um, uh, those efforts, gotcha. but because the studies that they were showing about, you know, what are the dangers of our platform to, to youth, mm. um, were really problematic for them, not just the body image stuff, but like, uh, so I feel worse about myself the longer I spend on Instagram mm. or, um, I'm going to get less sleep, mm. uh, the more time I spend. And, and these are, um, potentially effects that all of us will suffer, but they're heightened, uh, for teenagers because they're in such a, uh, self-aware, uh, formative time in their lives. Absolutely. They're trying to figure out their identity and who they are. Mm. And so they're going to be much more cued into social cues as to uh, telling them who they should be mm. than, you know, adults who are a bit more confident in what they're doing. 
Um, I don't know that had it been for the whistleblower that they would have been so quick to pause that study, but it's certainly like once it became public, that was one of the first big concrete changes that Facebook made in response to the news breaking was, ah, I think we're just going to stop this for now with the kibosh on it for, for the moment and, and see what happens. Um, so looking forward towards, you know, solutions, there's obviously been, you know, bluster about, uh, you know, repealing 230 or some of these other sort of drastic ideas. However, at the same time, it does seem like there's this pattern of, something terrible happens with respect to one of these platforms and they'll say, oh, you know, we're going to adjust our algorithms or, you know, in a lot of respects, we're paying lip service to the particular issue, whether that's, you know, after the 2016 election, changing the way political content is shared or, mm-hmm. um, you know, with respect, I know looking at another company like uh, Google or, or, you know, with YouTube a few years ago, there was a lawsuit concerning data collection of, of minors and ad service and so on response. YouTube um, basically stopped showing ads or stop collecting information on, on, on minors. And, you know, you do see these sort of quick fixes that the, these, these companies deploy. They obviously have massive PR capabilities and, you know, we're aware of how short the news cycle is, you know, it, there, there tend not to be many enduring um, solutions about these things. But do you think that the Congress, whether it's going after 230 or sort of going after the surveillance capitalism, you know, just the business model that, uh, you know, the sort of drives all of these issues that's, you know, really no matter what we do about, you know, particular flare-ups here and there, whether it's politics or child safety or or other areas, um, do you think that anything concrete will be done? Because after all, this is a 25-year-old law that was created at a time where, you know, you dialed into the internet, and that's obviously not the business or regulatory environment we have today. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you see lawmakers actually going under the hood and, and changing something substantive, or is this just going to kind of go the way of the past controversies with these companies where nothing fundamentally changes? So uh, the companies are certainly interested in trying to get ahead of regulation, right? The same way that the uh, motion picture industry did in the 40s and 50s. There's a concern that uh, uh, the government needs to come in and clean up movies because they're starting to, to talk about uh, socially unacceptable things. Mm. And the movie industry was successful in staving off government intervention by adopting the rating system, right? The mm-hmm. GPG, BG13R stuff, right? That's considered a, a huge success for... Uh, private self-regulation as an alternative to uh, government intervention. And, and I think um, what we see in a lot of these proffers of, oh, yeah, that's a problem, we can fix it, right, is exactly an attempt to try to recreate that. I'm not sure they're going to get there. Mm-hmm. That having, I, I think the, the, if we don't see a lot of legislation moving forward, it's not going to be because we're satisfied with what Facebook has chosen to do internally. I keep using Facebook, but I mean the industry generally, right? Right, big tech. Uh, right. Uh, but that we can't get a consensus on what should be done. That having been said, the inability to push something through Congress doesn't mean that the government is without powers. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly when it, with issues that are highly complex and technical, like how technology works in uh, cyberspace, we have increasingly turned to agencies to answer those questions. Mm. And so that's what, uh, the piece we haven't talked about so far is the Federal Trade Commission, right? Uh, Lena Kahn Uh, 32-year-old who made her bones as a a law student writing uh, a blockbuster article criticizing Amazon's business model, Uh, has risen to um, become one of the biggest critics of big tech generally. And she was recently installed as chairwoman of the FTC. Mm -hmm. Her intent is to use all of the power of the Federal Trade Commission to kind of rein in some of those sharp practices, not just the kind of social media bad information stuff, which may or may not be within her portfolio, but a lot of other really, what she sees really problematic uh, impulses by uh, the big five, right? Depending on how you count them, like FANG, right? Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, or uh, if you swap out for 
Microsoft, you'd be like MAGA F, right? Depending on how you, you <laughs> figure out who the what big tech is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we're there's a good chance that you will see some regulation both in terms of business practices and in terms of privacy in particular coming out of the agency space, the admin law space. And that's why you should all take admin law. (laughs) Shameless plug. (laughs) Because everything important that happens in our federal government today, Mm -hmm. especially with Congress refusing to do anything other than print money and spend it, is uh, made by agencies, not by Congress. And just going over that real quick, uh, do you think that other, like the EU, for instance, has been extremely progressive about these issues, whereas the U.S. hasn't? quite been that aggressive in responding to these things. Do you think that that changes the landscape at all or within, because these are all U.S. companies for the most part, or is that just sort of, you know, fines that they pay to, you know, the EU every now and then and the business model keeps trudging ahead? So it certainly um, has changed with regard, changed the dialogue about privacy, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, What information can be collected and when and for what purpose? We, um, the U.S. is uh, notoriously, um, uh, unable to pass a national privacy law. I don't really know why, but it just ha- it hasn't made it up uh, the legislative priority. So in order to uh, in order to fill that regulatory void, you saw um, action sort of at the international level and at the state level, right? That um, the EU adopted the GDPR initiative, which um, heavily regulates privacy practices of these companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also states are beginning, right? California being the, mo- the most significant one in the United States. That has said, if you're doing business in California, you have to abide by our privacy rules. Mm-hmm. And between the two of them, they have, in fact, changed in a sense where uh, privacy law goes. How much is not entirely clear. Okay. Um, and what the long-term effects are on companies other than big tech, right? Companies who... who can't afford to pay the tax and move on, right, mm-hmm. um, are something that academics like me are trying to study. So, for example, um, there are a number of U.S.-based smaller newspapers that are now uh, actively geo-blocking uh, European users. Why? Because they don't want to pay the cost of compliance with the GDPR, and they don't want to risk being sued if, you know, I, I spend most of my time talking about what's going on in Rochester, New York, but in the event that some guy in Denmark logs in and I inadvertently track his information, I don't want to get fined. Mm-hmm. by the EU or by or subject to a lawsuit or something. And so um, for companies that can't afford the litigation exposure, they're simply just blocking the EU, uh, EU users from using their product. Mm-hmm. Do you think this is going to become an antitrust issue then? Because it seems sort of that like this is that this privacy policy is a significant barrier to entry for smaller companies. Um, they're off the top of my head. The only subsidiary I'm thinking of is um, that spaces platform that was popular for a little while forgetting the name but um right so just to relate back to my question do you think this could become an antitrust issue issue where these major players are like they're able to pay the fine and go and proceed as they may it's kind of unfair to the smaller so it could be an antitrust issue but um and this is the the primary conduit for uh, the ftc to act but the difficulty with um, antitrust, and this is what I think the FTC is going to run into in their current lawsuits against Facebook and Google, mm. is how you define the market, right? Mm. So anti- you have, and usually you're not going to find a violation of antitrust law absent market power. Mm. And market power means, you know, uh, uh, the ability to um, enough market, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Concentration? Yeah, concentration, that's not, uh, share, yeah. market share. You have to have a sizable enough market share so that your choices will affect uh, what pricing happens overall in the space. So defining the market becomes very important. Mm-hmm. And that's the big battle in um, the Facebook case about 
uh, is Facebook a uh, monopolist or does it have market power in this space? Um, or is it one of many competing apps? Mm -hmm. The fact that TikTok has risen to become a tremendously popular alternative to uh, 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 other traditional social media during the time that the case is pending right. builds Facebook's argument that, you know, we don't have market power. We're part of a much larger, more competitive space. Mm. Um, and antitrust law says, well, if the market is competitive, then we rely upon competitive market forces to discipline. Mm -hmm. So the, the first barrier the FTC is going to have to get over is how you define the market in a way that uh, shows that uh, the company that you're targeting has market power. Mm. Um, so one issue, obviously, this year at the beginning you know, of the year, and it's, it's been such a long year, I can't believe it was the same calendar year, but the Capitol <laughs> riots, uh, I mean, maybe it's because I'm in law school or just the, the, I don't know, what it's like I'm in the twilight zone every time I go. <laughs> but, um, you know, obviously, uh, President Trump, you know, towards the end of his presidency there was banned from Twitter and, and from the social networks and Obviously, people have all sorts of different feelings about the ex-president, but do you think that you know, legally, fundamentally, there's a problem with tech firms having such a concentration of power that they can ban the president from being on there? Because you know, it's it's not hard to see how, you know, looking ahead, uh, you know, if you you have other folks who politically you feel one way or another about, if they have such power to be able to, to to you know, sort of take down the president and get to a point where like Facebook almost has its own courts, like they have an internal mm -hmm. system that can uh, try to regulate itself and its own decisions. And I think they said, well, you know, it's okay to ban Trump, but you have to do it, you know, look at it again in a year. It's like they're they're kind of their own government. At this, it's it's a little scary when when they have such power to be able to to do things like that and regulate themselves, uh, you know, away from any sort of feels like meaningful government scrutiny. Like, is this a a, a, a point in time or is this a preview of coming attractions? Yeah. So on the one hand, uh, you're right that the fact that we have a handful of companies that are intermediaries, right? It gives them potential gatekeeper power mm -hmm. about who gets to speak online and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, and there's long been a concern that the company can exercise that gatekeeping authority in ways that uh, shift or divert um, what we can say and uh, how the, the discourse plays out online. On the other hand, it's kind of amusing when I go through my Twitter feed and I see Josh Hawley, for example, Senator Hawley, um, publishing his book about how big tech is censoring him. Mm -hmm. I'm getting a picture of the book on Twitter as he's showing me where on Amazon I can buy his book about the fact that big tech prevents him from saying what he wants to say, right? So there's a lot of avenues out there for speech. And the fact that President Trump got kicked off Twitter didn't mean he went away. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, in some ways, it was a Streisand effect, right? People mm -hmm. want to know what, what does he think about the fact that he's no longer on Twitter and his megaphone got even bigger yeah. um, in some ways, not in all ways. Through legacy media primarily, though. Through legacy media, yeah. through his own efforts. Or, mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, the point is there's a lot of uh, ways to um, speak in the modern marketplace. And when you get cut out of one, um, you don't, you're not necessarily cut out completely. The other thing to think about is that the Internet ecosystem, is, as it turns out, is way more complex than we think it is. To the extent that we're worried about there being choke points, there's a lot of choke points. So when um, uh, uh, the Daily Stormer, which is a neo-Nazi uh, website, was taken down uh, after the, the Charlottesville riots, right? It, um, they ended up being kicked off of the Internet not because... Twitter stopped promoting them or um, even like ISPs started blocking them, right? Uh, it was because um, uh, they couldn't get hosting space anymore and that uh, GoDaddy delinked the, uh, the domain name, right? Mm -hmm. So you couldn't access it. Uh, nobody really thought that like, oh, and um, uh, some company um, 
I'm forgetting the name now, but it'll come to me like the moment I walk away. Uh, <laughs> stopped giving them DDoS protection, right? Stop protecting Cloudflare. Them. Cloudflare, yes. Yeah. So Cloudflare stopped giving them DDoS. Almost pretty. I, open. I, I'm not familiar with the case. I just know that's a company that does that. So it was a random guess. Yeah, no. The Cloudflare yeah. CEO is pretty open about like yeah. I don't want my company to be used to mm-hmm. protect guys who are promoting this kind of speech, and so yeah. I. Uh, pulled my cover and my protection mm-hmm. and I told everybody I'm pulling the protection and then they got taken down. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different ways, different companies in the internet ecosystem that have the ability to shape and flow uh, the flow of information online. Uh, it's, I think um, we, we can, the, the heat and light is on the ones that are most visible to us. Mm-hmm. But when you lift the hood, you find there's a lot of different um, potential choke points and either the FTC is going to regulate all of them or they're going to ha- uh, find a difficult job explaining why they're regulating the ones that consumers know and not the ones consumers don't. Um, do you have another question? Yeah. Uh, I just have two uh, final questions. One is, you know, looking to, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, how somehow in the U.S. there really hasn't been a way to advance any kind of like national privacy legislation. Uh, and we talked a little bit about how, you know, the EU has been able to be a little bit more or perhaps much more aggressive than the, the U.S. has been able to be in sort of rectifying some of these issues. It sort of naturally turns to a conversation about lobbying and, and, and the influence that these companies have to short circuit some of these efforts. Uh, when you look at, you know, obviously this Facebook whistleblower testified before the uh, it's like a commerce sub it's like a lot of commerce technology is a long very long name. Um, you have, you know, Senator Blumenthal and uh, you know, some, some others that are on there. When you look at, um, you know, because obviously corporations can't donate directly to, um, you know, like Facebook can't give money directly to politicians. You can, go, you can give it to like a, a PAC or, you know, there's other avenues there. Um, a lot of the biggest, you know, donors are big law firms that, that defend these companies because, you know, firms are organized as partnerships and under the law they can, um, you know, do things that corporations cannot, which sort of opens the, the question of, I mean, I guess how much, you know, influence, I mean, I think that we all sort of have a sense of what the answer is, but if you have any insight to it, like how specifically are these firms able to, you know, get the the right money and the right message to the right people to sort of have this uncanny state of affairs where it seems like nothing really ever materially changes. You know, you have, you know, people sort of banging the gavel on Capitol Hill, but all this is terrible. This is outrageous. But you know, two thirty, the surveillance guy, like the real uh, bread and butter that enables these business models. Nothing really ever materializes around that. Do you think it's a matter of lobbying? A matter of you know, we talked about lawmakers perhaps not really understanding these issues, or like, what do you think is the primary culprit in terms of not really ever being able to have any strong legislation that that, that deals with us? Are we too divided? Like, what do you think it is that sort of keeps keeps us in the box and keeps things working the way that they are, which doesn't seem like it works very well. So I am not, uh, I'll, I'll caveat by saying I'm not a corporate mm. uh, or a um, uh, campaign finance guy, right? Mm. So I don't know all of the nuances in a way that's going to allow me to opine really um, uh, at an academic level on that. But as sort of an observer, I, my sense is that um, lobbying and dollars flowing into Congress are not as important as um, simply the um, more structural problems right now with Congress's ability to get anything done, right? Mm-hmm. If the Democrats are for it, the Republicans are against it and vice versa. Right. And that kind of tribalism makes it hard to get anything done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of tribalism is going to be um, uh, uh, reinforced by things like gerrymandering, mm-hmm. um, by um, House rules that limit uh, what you can debate and when things can come up. Uh, so it's a combination, I think, of the structures in Congress and uh, the uh, underlying uh, political environment in which the parties are operating mm-hmm. that's preventing stuff from from getting done. Uh, but I think it, uh, when things do start moving, right, it becomes important to address the issue 
uh, at a uh, deeper and more detailed level than you currently get with sound bites, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so privacy, for example, we talk about privacy. Everybody wants to protect privacy. Privacy is one part of a much larger conversation about how the internet works. Mm -hmm. That, uh, in uh, privacy is about the flow of information online. Information is the lifeblood of the internet. Mm -hmm. It's the monetization of information that allows Facebook and Google to make their products free for everybody. Right. Um, so when you talk about doing what the EU is suggesting, going from opt out to opt in, what does that mean? Right. Consumers are still controlling who gets to use their data, right? They're ultimately the ones making the decision whether to flip the switch. Mm -hmm. But it changes the default. And changing the default uh, changes how much information is available from consumers who simply don't care either way. Mm -hmm. The American system and opt-out system means that unless you object, your information is available within the pool to be monetized. Mm -hmm. If we change that, like the, like the EU has done, that pool shrinks dramatically, mm. right? There's just not as much data to be monetized. And so one of two things has to happen if you shrink the pool of available information for monetization. Either these companies change what they're providing because there's not enough money to support it. Mm. Or they start charging for things that are right now going to be free, right? And that has huge implications for the digital divide. Uh, one of the beauties of um, an advertising-based model right now is that um, as long as you can afford an internet connection, you can use most of these tools online without additional cost. Mm -hmm. If we end up moving to a pay-for-service model, um, then that exacerbates the, the divide between the rich and the poor. So, I mean, these are things that, uh, once you start thinking about what a real privacy law is going to look like, these are things that have to come up that aren't currently coming up. Um, I'm not sure Congress is ready to have that discussion. I'm not sure agencies are ready to have that discussion, mm -hmm. but they're probably a better place for that conversation to begin. Yeah. Uh, well, just one last fun question that I was asked to ask you. Um, your hats are very popular <laughs> around the school. Uh, what is the story? of this? It's, it's a very fashionable. But we're just curious like how, how that came to be. I, so I'm a big uh, uh. Uh, classic movie fan. Right? Nice. So I love the films of the, the 30s and 40s. Uh. Casablanca. Um, uh. Yeah. Mm. Um, I, I am uh, one of the things I really hold against uh, President Kennedy is the fact that um, he in one fell swoop stopped American men from wearing hats, right? So everybody wore hats in the 40s and 50s. And mm -hmm. Then he becomes president. He wants to show I'm the hip young guy mm -hmm. and cast off his hat. And mm -hmm. suddenly nobody wears hats anymore from the 60s forward, right? Um, he had a top hat on his inauguration, I think, right? Uh, he the, might have. Yeah. But th this is sort of the, the big yeah, cultural the touchstone, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, when the president led us in that direction. I like old fashioned. I'm, nice. I, I'm, I'm kind of a, I mean, you probably know I'm sort of a, conservative little C guy generally, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I think it's a nice throwback to, to an earlier era. That's cool. Um, really awesome. I respect and, it. Yeah, me and, too. And my dad and my grandfather were both bald and eventually I'm, going to <laughs> I'm not there yet. But Practical. This is yeah. a preemptive measure. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Awesome. Well, we've been speaking to uh, Professor Lyons here at BC Law. I'm Tom Blakely. This is Joanna Plazier. Actually, Tom, oh. can I do the closeout? Go ahead. Okay. Um, Professor Lyons, thank you so much for joining us today. Distinguished tech scholar and administrative, uh, let me restart that. Okay. Professor Lyons, thank you so much for joining us today. Distinguished tech scholar and admin law scholar. Thank you for, so much for your insight and for having us or for coming on to our podcast today. Hey, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right. Thank you. Thank you.